happy November and welcome to another episode of 2020 Vision, where we talk everything from primaries to politics. I'm one of your hosts, Miliana Boucher. And I'm Aria Tusi. And today we're going to be talking about all the things that you probably don't know about the political process, or at least the things that are rarely talked about in the media or by politicians themselves. Before we do that, let's talk about the headlines. It was a quite a busy week in politics news this week. On Thursday, the House voted to start an impeachment inquiry on President Donald Trump. Um, and interestingly, it passed exactly along party lines, with the exception of two Democrats who broke rank. Um, so, you know, they're probably going to be stonewalled by the uh, by the party from now on. The two Democrats who voted against their party and against the resolution for impeachment were Representative Jeff Van Drew from New Jersey and Colin Peterson of Minnesota. Um, they both represent uh, districts that went to Donald Trump in 2016, so their vote was probably not that unpopular with their constituents, but it is probably something to note in terms of their future in the Democratic Party. That's right. And speaking of political futures, Representative Katie Hill of California on Thursday, in her final act after voting for the impeachment inquiry, resigned from her office after a sex scandal where her uh, nude photos were leaked following an affair with her staffer. Yeah, she used her last speech as representative to attack the double standard on which she thought she was being pushed out of the House. Um, she notably as one can probably assume, attacked Donald Trump for being able to make comments regarding his and his partner's sexuality, whereas her sexuality was completely off the table and led to her being dismissed from the House of Representatives. And uh, lastly, on Monday, there was a historic town hall that was held in a penitentiary outside of Philadelphia. And you may have you know, heard of the town hall events. We've, we've talked about them a couple times on the show before. They're basically... Um, more intimate Q&A style uh, sessions where the candidates or the Democratic candidates for president can speak more in depth about a specific issue. Previous ones have been on things like immigration or climate change. But this one uh, was on uh, justice reform, and it was notable for being for being the first town hall hosted by previously incarcerated individuals and was um, attended by justice reform activists and, and previously incarcerated individuals and only three Democratic candidates showed up. Which ones? They were uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. That that one's not a surprise because just reform is a strong part of his platform. And uh, surprisingly, Tom Steyer. I feel like that's not surprising, though. I feel like that was an easy way for him to kind of go to the events where he perhaps knew that other candidates weren't going. That way he could stand out and maybe become known. I mean, I don't know if that will be successful in his future, but that might be a reason why he definitely did it. You like have a stage where mm-hmm. he's not as he doesn't have to compete as much. Yeah, definitely. Um I mean, there was uh this seems like the other town halls like a good opportunity to answer questions rarely asked on the campaign trail, but only 3 showed up. I feel like this plays really interestingly for NYU students who just saw that the prison education system just had five or six students graduate with an associate's degree from NYU, many of them to go on to get a bachelor's from NYU, and where we saw President Andy Hamilton giving out the diplomas himself to these candidates. I feel like that's a really interesting parlay, and also really interesting that more Democratic candidates didn't think it was necessary to attend or didn't see it as important. Right. I think the Wild Kill program is one of the the only consistently good things that this school does. <laughs> so, yeah, good. congratulations to those students, too. Now that we've talked about the headlines, it's time to get into the meat of this episode. 
So although we do spend most of our time talking about things that you might know about the political scene, there are a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that few people talk about. So um, the first one is kind of it's in a weird place because it's talked about a lot, but also not really gone in depth on, and it's campaign finance. Um, the thing about campaign finance is that they're public record. You can look up exactly who contributed to whose campaign and how much. And this can kind of, if, if you follow, if you look at those, uh, that information and follow the money, it can definitely explain certain things, certain positions that candidates take, basically because, you know, they have a, they have an obligation to people who help them get into office. Before we talk about the individual candidates and how much money they are currently uh, gardening for their campaigns, I think it's important to talk about some trends that we see in campaign finance over the years. First of all, it's been noted by lots of political research that often the candidate with the most money will win regardless of policy standpoint or anything else. So all things equal, the person with the most money is more likely to win. It often coincides that the person with most money is an incumbent who is already known, which are other factors that play into their victory in an election. But money is a really important factor in winning a campaign and looking into the individuals who are running in the 2020 Democratic primary will be a really interesting way to see who has the chance of winning just based on the money. That's right. And that's why, as we discussed last week, why Mike Pence is such an asset to Donald Trump's campaign, because he's responsible for a lot of the fundraising base that his campaign has. So speaking of Donald Trump, Donald Trump is obviously running in this 2020 election, and he currently for his 2020 election has raised more than $166 million specifically from PACs. So, Arya, before we continue, what are PACs? A PAC is a political action committee, and it's basically an organization that can be set up by anyone that is not bound to the same rules as uh, a candidate or a campaign for spending that money. So parties have lots of limitations on what they can say about candidates. PACs do not have those same limitations. So, for instance, a the Republican Party, if Donald Trump was not the only person running, which he isn't, but as the incumbent he basically is, they could not specifically endorse one candidate or another. However, PACs have no such limitation on that sense, in which case they can completely release ads or other media that would show the candidate, them endorsing a particular candidate for president. This is different from political parties, and that gives PACs a lot of power both in the money they can wield and in the influence they can have because of their limited restrictions. It also means that anyone who would, outside of a PAC, have uh, a restriction on where they can spend money, if they give that money to a PAC, it suddenly becomes unrestricted. Going off of that, there's actually a limit. Uh, so there's the FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission, which deals with money in campaigns. Campaign contributions. And they place limits on how much individual donors can give to a campaign at once. But these limitations, again, are not present on PACs, which gives them even more power than an individual does, regardless of how much money that individual has. A lot of really rich individuals will just funnel their money, as Aria just said, into PACs in order to make sure that they don't have limitations on how much they can fund a particular candidate. Companies, too. Yes, definitely. Talking more specifically about the individual candidates, Donald Trump has raised the most amount of PAC money, having raised about $80 million in just PAC money alone or other outside sources that could include companies or other people who want their interest to be involved in Donald Trump's decision-making if he were to get reelected in 2020. Now, moving on to the Democrats, uh, Bernie Sanders leads uh, in total funding, but only $1,800 of that is from outside sources. So just to to highlight that difference, Donald Trump has raised $80 million in outside sources. Bernie that, Sanders, and that's about, that's about a third of his total campaign funds. 
Bernie Sanders has raised less than that in all of his campaign funding. Right. Now, moving down the list, we have, again, this this list is in order of total funding, but we're talking about PAC money right now. Elizabeth Warren is in uh, $0 from from PACs. Uh, Pete Bougie is also 0 from PACs. Uh, Tom Steyer, 0 Joe Biden, 0 but I think it, it is actually a really important thing to talk about how a lot of these Democratic candidates don't have any PAC money coming in. That is a really part of a lot of Democratic stances to not have PAC money coming in. And so I think that it is an important distinction to make that a lot of these candidates are sticking to that word. And there are some candidates like um, especially Sanders um, and uh, Warren who have made campaign finance reform a major part of their platforms because they want to and uh, Steyer's and saying this as well. They want to get, quote unquote, big money out of politics. Yeah. So then going back uh, to the overall idea of campaign funding, Donald Trump, again, is leading that list for his total campaign. He has raised one hundred sixty six million dollars. Then we have Sanders at seventy four million, Warren at sixty million, Buttigieg at fifty one million, Steyer at just under that at fifty million and then Biden at thirty seven million. Biden, Biden at thirty-seven million is a bit concerned. I'd be concerned if I were Biden because Biden is the establishment candidate. He shouldn't have funding problems, but he's under Buttigieg. That's actually an interesting thing to point, though. A lot of mainstream like media right now, the modern media is talking a lot about Buttigieg's money and how it's kind of inconsistent with his polling ratings. Which usually, as we mentioned earlier, regarding the trends in money and political campaigns is not the case. Usually the money follows the popularity pretty well, but this does not seem to be the case with Buttigieg. No, not at all. And um and I mean same same with Biden. He's at the top of the polls, but he's near the near the bottom of the of the major candidates in terms of funding. So all of this is to go to show that just the money that goes into campaigns is not just coming from the individuals in America who want to fund their camp candidates. They are coming from campaigns who are thinking that if they fund these candidates, they can get some real policy to come out of it if they were to be elected. Look at an example like Buttigieg, who um, pretty recently has been under fire for taking his his defense is that we can't that, that he can't take on Donald Trump's incredibly well funded campaign without the power that's afforded by, you know, having big donors behind you. I just think this goes to show in general just the power that money and advertisers and companies can play on things that we see that we don't even think about. So even taking this beyond politics, there's a lot of advertisement in TV shows and in movies that we don't think about, but that ad executives behind the scenes are actually controlling the way the movie is being made. So for instance, this is kind of an off-topic example, but there was a gas company that was funding a movie on the Nuremberg trials. And so therefore they took some power into what the movie could or could not include, and they managed to make it that a movie about the Nuremberg trials did not include a single mention of gas. You're kidding. No, not kidding. What movie was it? Journey to Nuremberg. Uh And it just goes to show just how much power money can have behind the scenes that we don't even know about, but that is influencing the way in which we think about things and the way in which we perceive the world. Um, Another example of this is when you see in TV shows a whole episode that's about the young daughter in the show who broke her laptops and needs to go to Apple. Apple is paying for that. Or there's another thing... um Pretty much any action movie, any modern action movie, superhero movies, you know, like Transformers, any, like Fast, any any pretty much modern action movie that involves the military in some way. There's an entire office in the U.S. military that is dedicated to this, that if they want to use any kind of military hardware or locations for shooting, they need to get their script approved by the military. So they basically can't be explicitly, if, you, if you're making a war movie and you want to use authentic prop, you basically can't 
openly criticize the military in any way. So I guess this this really just goes to show the kind of things that happen that consumers and general public doesn't know about, but that can have huge impacts. For instance, imagine a war movie in which they weren't allowed to film in some sort of location that looked like the Pentagon. Right. Exactly. Right. Just, you, you wouldn't be able to do it. Exactly. But also, that movie would have existed with a completely different script. Had it existed, probably it would be less censored. Probably it would look entirely different. But it just goes to show just the forces behind the scenes that we don't see every day. Right. Another example of this is an Amicus Curiae brief, which I just had to teach my senior co-host what that was. My senior co-host politics major, what an Amicus Curiae brief is. Any comment on that one? No comment. Yeah, that's what I thought. So for those of you who are not politics majors and therefore have every reason not to know what an Amicus Curiae brief, this is when an outside party will send its interests to a judge in order for the judge to consider that along with the defense and the prosecutor's case while making a final decision in a trial. So for an example, if you have a defendant and a prosecutor who are giving cases to the judge, uh, for instance, you can think of an amicus cray brief in relation to NYU. Uh, The Supreme Court this year is going to look on their docket at a case regarding DACA and its future in the United States government. And NYU partnered with 19 other universities in order to send an amicus curiae to the Supreme Court defending DACA students and specifically defending the students who go to NYU in hopes that the DACA program will remain and that the judges will consider their appeal to the court. It's like lobbying, but for courts. Yeah, but a lot of people don't know that amicus curiae briefs exist. A lot of people think that only the prosecution and the defendant are the opinions that are going to influence the judge or the jury or the panel of judges. But there's actually so much more that happens as we've been talking about this whole episode, behind the scenes, all these companies that are getting their interests heard without the public hearing them as well. So our incredibly short time has neared its end, and it's time to look at polls this week. Some interesting things have been happening in the polls this week, actually. Um, Biden is still in the lead at 26.7%, but a far cry from his earlier 31%. It seems like everyone has just gone down. Warren, second place, as usual, 21%. Sanders at 16.8. He's He's been hovering around the 14 to 16 range for a long time now, but he's, he's a bit higher than that for once. Um, and then Buttigieg has jumped up a little bit from he's been around 5 for a long time. Now he's at 7.7. Also coincides with him accepting some pretty large donations. Next up, Harris at 4.7. Yang at 2.7. Gabbard at 2.0. O'Rourke at 2.0. Klobuchar at 1.8, Booker at 1.7, Steyer at 1 even, Castro at 0.7. I think it's also important to note that polls are not necessarily the most accurate representation of public sentiment in the United States. Of course, this is probably obvious, but there's something called the like the framing effect or the wording effect, in which case even just the slight use of one word in a poll or in a survey can drastically change the way in which someone answers the question, which means that someone who is actually a staunch uh, partisan could appear to be much more moderate just if the question is worded weirdly. Right. And this is why when it comes to, you know, from the academic side of making polls, choosing the questions is such a big part of creating a poll. And that's why a lot of people who look at polls in depth want to see exactly what the questions were asked were. That's all the time we have for today. As you said, I'm Miliana Boucher. And I'm Aria Tusi. And this has been 2020 Vision for WNYU.org. And uh, yeah, if you're listening to the .org stream, stay tuned for The Spotlight, a general sports talk show. And if you're listening on your podcast app, see you next week. See you next week.